0: From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan Lasky. The hand of Father Peter Rajic was the last hand I shook. It was March 9th, just two days before Tom Hanks announced he had COVID-19. The NBA stopped playing and the US began to shut down. Father Peter was visiting from Brussels where he leads the European Jesuits social justice efforts. I stuck out my hand toward him after an in-person interview. He looked at me like I had two heads, but he shook my hand anyway. We hoped to run that conversation as an episode of AMDG the following week, but the pandemic hit and we pivoted. Eventually, I scrapped that recording and asked Father Peter to talk again, to get a sense of how the pandemic had affected his life and ministry in Western Europe. I've been so focused on North America and the pandemic here that it was helpful and broadening to get his perspective. We also talked about leadership, the changing church, and Father Peter's own colorful childhood and early inklings of a Jesuit vocation in his native Slovenia. It was a fun conversation with one of the most dynamic Jesuits I've ever met. Don't forget to subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts. And thanks for joining us. Father Peter Rajic, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for joining me today. How are you doing?
1: Thanks for having me and doing really well here in Europe, Brussels. In Brussels. Uh,
0: so we'll we'll get into kind of what you're doing over there. But I, this is the second time we've tried this. So we did a, a podcast interview in March in person. It was March 9th. And I was telling you before we started recording, you were the last person outside of my family whose hand I've shaken. Great. It was a, and I, I reached, we talked and I reached out my hand to you and you looked at me like, what are you doing? I was like, Oh, sorry, but we did shake hands. And then you flew back to, to Brussels. And then two days later, March 11th is when things kind of shut down in the US. And I've only been back to the office like one day. So you were my last in person interview, or maybe I did one the day after you. Anyway, uh, I know, I think you're the last one. And like, Things have so so different now that after we recorded our conversation, we had to like go to exclusively COVID programming for a while, and then we're like, "Well, where do we put you in?" So guess what? We're just gonna have our conversation again within the context of COVID right now. That so, was
1: a wonderful visit, and I, I much enjoyed it. I really am mm, sorry for all that happened with uh, COVID, and uh, I'm happy to be back again. Yeah, well, no, I'm glad we could could make it work, and
0: uh, yeah, excited to hear about what your last six months has been like. Uh, so maybe we could start
1: if you could just tell me a little bit about yourself and and your background. I was born in Slovenia, a country of two million in Central Europe, uh, below the Alps, to a family that um, uh, loved me much, and I love it uh, much uh, uh, in return. Uh, it was. Um, a modest setting that we lived in, in terms of uh, the economic uh, background. At the time, it was still a communist country uh, called uh, Yugoslavia. Uh, My parents felt it quite a bit, uh, we as children a little bit less. I was quite brave as a kid because I dared to uh, still be an altar boy at the church. And I remember once I even asked a teacher, it was my um, second grade, so it must have been six or seven, and uh, to ask her if I can go to the church, (laughs) <laughs> instead of going to the class. And she allowed me. I don't know how that was possible. But I think that uh, from very early on, I felt this calling to, to, to the church, to the, um, to the Eucharist, uh, and to be there and uh, serve. I have uh, one brother, one sibling, and he has a wonderful family, wife and four uh, wonderful sons. So whenever I'm back to Slovenia, I'm uh, full of joy uh, seeing them Uh, talking to them, challenging them, uh, and uh, also talking to my parents. Uh, They're doing fine. Uh, They really hope they don't get uh, affected by COVID uh, because of certain preconditions. So it's a common worry to us all. Uh, Currently, my parents live on a wonderful small farm. They moved uh, in the last years after our uh, grandparents on my maternal side passed away. So uh, when I go back, I have the privilege to see the ducks and the chicken and the forest animals. And it's a wonderful, wonderful place for uh, family joy and also to uh, relax. So yeah, tell me a little bit about growing up in Slovenia.
0: I remember you're sharing stories the last time we met about different jobs you had, different activities you like to do. Tell me, yeah, just Tell me some more about what Slovenia is like and what your background there was like.
1: Well of course Slovenia is the most beautiful country in the world moreover it's the country of love you know if you say slovenia so you have s and then you have love inia right isn't that nice in english yeah. yes that's nice but that, in, in fact, slovenian it's not the capital of slovenia is called ljubljana and the small river going through the capital is called ljubljaniça and the roots go to the word of love you no know, ljubiti like in other slavic languages so there may be even a connection between slovenian and english so it kind of uh, works It is a lovely country, people are lovely. There is something special about Slovenians, I think. I was thinking about this in the past few days because of this great success at the Tour de France. Uh, You may have known that uh, uh, two Slovenians scored first and second, uh, Pogacar and Roglic. And um, so there could be a few explanations for it. Uh, The country, of course, course is small, uh, relatively speaking. And uh, there may be one thing which uh, pushes us quite a bit to be disciplined. I think it's our obsession with schedule. No, it may not be an obsession actually, but what I see is uh, often we talk about the meeting and so we say, okay, so we'll meet at three and then you meet at three and then all the discussion before is that, yeah, yeah that three, three o'clock, you know, it's, it, it kind of predetermines you so much and it happens to me too. So sometimes I need to grow in freedom uh, towards those numbers and then, Meeting other cult- cultures like here in Brussels, then you see that for some people three o'clock is actually three fifteen or three thirty, while for others it's even two fifty. So that that really depends. So I think that's that's one of the things. The other thing I think a bit characteristic about Slovenia is uh, determination. Once you get start, uh, once you get things rolling, I think you, you just go ahead, and um, I think that pays off uh, quite well because if it, if you look at the let's say economic performance uh, into artistic. Uh, let's say, fruitfulness of uh, the nation, it's actually relatively high uh, comparing the resources and the, the, you know, the, the size of the country and so on. So in relative terms, I think it's, it's pretty good. How, what did it look like to grow up in Slovenia? It was a much different place. I remember you couldn't buy bananas, you couldn't buy uh, some other exotic fruit because the communists would tell you that's not good for you, so they wouldn't import it. So we went to Austria, for example. We were already allowed to go to Austria, and then you know we would buy colored crayons there, or bananas, or things like that. Silly, you know. And this this was kind of common to many of uh, communist countries uh, at the time. Yet communism was not as harsh as in some other countries. So. Uh, attendance of mass was was alright unless you were in an important position um, and uh, other things, of course, as children we felt it less except I also remember one time, I, I was, this was must have been my fifth grade and we had a class of Serbo-Croatian because we had to learn, you know, in Yugoslavia the official language was Serbo-Croatian but each of the six republics at the time um, had some sort of a, a liberty to talk about the language, so in Slovenian in Slovenia, we had the Slovenian as the, the official language, as well as a little bit of Italian and a little bit of Hungarian for the minorities in the country. So big respect to the minorities. Uh, there were about, we call, I think, they, they were called nationalities, nations, and nationalities of Yugoslavia. So many. You know. Anyways, uh, so at that class, uh, we talked about Tito. You may have heard of Josip Broz Tito. He was the great marshal. And of course, a big dictator killed, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people, uh, especially the communists that he didn't like. And between 45 and 48, he was most likely much more violent than even Stalin. Anyway, so I learned this from my grandfather, who was not on the communist side; he was a little bit on the other one. And uh, and then you know, then you learn this as a kid, and then you go back to school, and you're I was innocent, and I say, well, Tito was, uh, you know, was in a sense a criminal. And people were like, no, you can't not be saying this. And she was she was really polite and, in a sense, uh, uh, didn't react as she, uh, she could have. So, um, all things considered, I think um, uh, it went quite well until the independence of uh, '91. Uh, however, there was a short war because the Yugoslav National Army attacked um, this, some of the forces of the emerging Slovenian uh, army and um, then you would remember that in Croatia, it was much, much worse. So for years there was a war as well as then in Serbia, and uh, I mean in the uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina um, and other places, uh, many refugees still now in, uh, in these places, especially now Serbs in Serbia, coming from different parts of Yugoslavia. Uh, issues with uh, Kosovo, Macedonia, not an easy place. And I remember as a child, at that point, I was um, in high school or a little earlier, uh, we were also, Perplexed at what is happening, and some of our family members, there were intermarriages, uh, people from different republic, uh, got, republics got together, and uh, people died, and you went like, "This is this is wrong," and I think that was one of the actually uh, important, while rare instances of the United States uh, and NATO to intervene in Bosnia, and it worked. And uh, the war ended. I remember later on as a, a Jesuit novice and scholastic, I went several times to Sarajevo. I also worked with uh, worked with refugees. I started as a young scholastic of Jesuits shortly after the novitiate, um, the Jesuit refugee service in Slovenia, which then I think affected also my uh, vocation uh, later on. So a little bit about my upbringing. So didn't you tell me maybe the last time we talked that you'd worked in a some kind of factory? Sure. So in high school, I would go, I would have a summer job and would, would work there at the assembly line, uh, putting, uh, you know, assembling refrigerators, uh, or I would wake, uh, work at the place where there was a coal mine, uh, where my father also worked to get some experience there and some earn some money. Then I worked with my grandfather as a, an assistant, uh, he was, a, a Mason and, uh, it was a wonderful experience uh, at the time i was quite active in terms of you know intellectual life of course as as, as a teenager can be uh, but this experience was important to me because seeing the physical work we would work 12 to 13 hours a day most likely this would not be allowed today anymore but it was good for us because we learned we earned money i could buy an electric guitar and an accordion because i was also playing music was um, is very different. Um, it wouldn't tire me out as much as, interestingly, intellectual work. Intellectual work sometimes, or working with others in terms of teams, takes more time. At least for me, takes more space, uh, takes more digestion, and uh, all those experiences were uh, beneficial to me.
0: So you you mentioned the accordion. It's so funny that you mentioned that. So this morning, our five year old just asked to listen to some polka, and Great. so I pulled up. Uh, I put like if you look at polka on Spotify, who's the Frankie Yankovic? He's this American polka player who played in the Slovenian polka style. He was the king of polka in the United States. Of course. So. So we're listening to some Slovenian polka in, uh, well, Slovenian American
1: polka in our house this morning. It's still very much present in the United States, especially Cleveland. Cleveland was the largest Slovenian city outside of Slovenia, still is, I think. And then many other cities where Slovenians are present. Currently still you would have a strong community in Chicago, Le and then San Francisco, Washington, New York. Uh, many other places, wonderful places that I had a chance to visit while I was uh, studying and then working in the United States. And yes, polka is a big deal. And um, I remember in high school, I also joined a folklore group. So we traveled a little bit around Europe. Uh, I played the accordion. The others uh, danced. Those were wonderful times. Uh, the accordion, in a sense, for Slovenians is a national instrument. So if you play it, it's, it's it kind of... It kind of helps and then people think you're a happy person and then they say, oh, you're so great and you must be so glad because you play at all these weddings and so on. And I thought, nah, I mean, it's nice, but it's, it's actually not that much. It was actually one of the questions that I had for myself when I was deciding the vocation. And so by playing the accordion or being at the parties or playing the guitar, I knew that I could bring certain joy to people. But this joy usually didn't last. Uh, while I saw that when I deal with spiritual things, when I organized a prayer group as, a, let's say, a teenager already at the school, at the high school, <laughs> we had lots together with a group of five to ten people and several of us then joined the, the seminary or, you know, religious order or started theology further on. It was a beautiful, beautiful time. And this was the real question at the time, and it still is today for me, is what brings us lasting joy? What is the joy that lasts? So an accordion can help, of course, because you can also uh, pray to God with the accordion, even though that in Slovenia is very hard. You would not see an accordion in the church. It's kind of it's kind of too secular. That's more like for parties or for polkas. You say, polka mass in Slovenia. No, it doesn't work. It works with some of the Slovenians in the United States. Not Slovenia. Don't do it. You can't. No. Uh,
0: but it, so, it, it, it could help. It sounds, so this is a very Ignatian story to me, right? Because you have Ignatius's own kind of his big conversion experience when he, you know, was convalescing and would think about these, you know, being a knight, the life of chivalry, and it wouldn't leave him feeling consoled after he would have these kind of imaginings right and then he would kind of re- re- imagine himself like acting like a saint and, and serving god and that is what brought him kind of real joy and that was kind of an early thing that led him on his his own journey so for you as you had all these interests and what was it for you that led you to uh discerning life in the jesuits
1: so there were a few things uh, i could start with uh when a an anecdotal one, which is, I was told, I don't remember this, but suppose when I was three years old, my grandfather, maternal one, asked me whether I wanted to become a priest. And we had just seen a show on priests and bishops. And I said, no, I want to become a bishop. <laughs> so, of course, then joining the Jesuits, you kind of, uh, you, you, that kind of ambition is, 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 is gone because uh, we're not supposed to have desires of, uh, you know, Episcopal titles, even though some of the Jesuits still didn't become bishops and then some become cardinals and then one even became the Pope. Anyways, it's no longer my desire, of course, but the desire to become a bishop is a good one because it's actually a desire to serve the community. And I think that that is an extremely important desire. That was actually one of my questions when I was in high school, uh, discerning also for the Jesuits, where I would be able to love more. And there is this question of more. Right, it's the question of magis. It's it's a really Ignatian, Jesuit question. We talk about the greater glory of God. And this is demanding in a sense, you know, it's not just the glory of God, we're there for the glory of God. We're there for the greater glory of God. So, let, and so we are comparing ourselves to others, imagine. Of course, we first compare ourselves to ourselves <laughs> because you, wanna, you really want to succeed and we want to succeed in service. In the service, we would like to say, it's a loving service. What really made me think, I think, when i was in high school i was uh, so must have been when i was about 16 15 years old was the question am i willing to say yes to god and for some reason that question really so because i thought if i really say yes to god i have to let, let go of everything in a good sense then use all the talents and everything i have and i was not ready at the time so it was it, it was um it was a journey it was a wonderful journey and then i remember i went on a silent retreat as uh, i was 17 years old and Uh, Two people invited me, they thought I was uh, mature enough. And then we went into silence, I was for the first time in silence, three days or five days, I don't remember. It was wonderful. And I haven't decided at that point yet, but that left such an imprint uh, in me in terms of uh, conversion, yes, and in fact, spiritual exercises, St. Ignatius, the aim is to get rid of disordered attachments. That's the main aim. So we give each other exercises so that we do that. Of course, meeting Christ is the essential, but it's not It's not interesting, the main aim, even if it comes naturally. And then I remember the second retreat. By that time, I think I already decided, and I had to pray uh, quite a bit. It was a good time of discernment. At the time, I was in love, much in love with uh, this wonderful... Um, person, she is now married, has uh, children. I will not go much into details. It was like angelic love, and uh, but I still had to decide because somehow this calling to priesthood didn't uh, didn't go away. So it took me sometimes, some time. It took uh, some tears, um, and it took a decision, and then um, and then yeah, I decided. I first spent a year in the Assisian seminary. Uh, while keeping the contacts with the Jesuits and then I just realized that for serving and loving more I would need to join the Jesuits. Uh, I remember I made that decision in Germany. I was on a language course in uh, Bonn and um, Was uh, such a such an important time and since then I have um, gained a lot of I think knowledge and virtue and support uh, by and through the Jesuits And i think i had a wonderful formation that i am really grateful for and my experience often has been including the united states that my jesuit uh, fellows um, my jesuit friends would do anything that i succeed or that i'd be uh, fruitful and now i think that pays off because um, i really hope and also see hopefully i'm not uh, proud uh, too proud that uh, there is now a return on this investment, and that's—I think—that's a joy, and I think we are called to uh, to give back. So you've mentioned you mentioned
0: kind of being in the Jesuits—a chance to love more, to help people discover joy that lasts, and to use your your gifts for the building up of the kingdom. So, tell me a little bit more about what you're doing now. How are you using? Uh, your gifts. What? What is your, you could talk a little bit about your job, but then kind of, uh, how you approach it, what you're hoping to do uh, in the ministry you're serving in now.
1: Currently, I work at the Jesuit European Social Center. Uh, as an abbreviation, we call it JESC. Uh, in this center, I play a role of the director and also the coordinator for Social Apostolate for Europe and the Near East. So I try to coordinate our work around the continent in the link with our office uh, in Rome. I am a delegate to a so-called president of the Conference of European Provincials. And we focus mostly on issues that concern European affairs, that concern justice, that concern ecology, and that also concern leadership. So those would be our four main areas of work. And I think it was a very interesting journey uh, for myself because it came to my great surprise to be sent to brussels Uh, i had uh, worked in the united states as uh, teaching political science at a wonderful jesuit university called santa clara had wonderful memories before that i studied at georgetown where i did my phd in political science or government and then i spent some time in slovenia teaching um, also at the seminary Uh, i i also taught political philosophy and a few other subjects was a superior at the wonderful community of St. Joseph in Ljubljana where we opened a small residential college and also helped open a small residential college in Maribor. So I worked with youth even though 10 years before I would have never seen myself working with, with the youth and then it came out so naturally and in a sense uh, these what I see now as uh, talents helped me in this job. Uh, one of the things that uh, comes very naturally to me is to activate projects. For example, with a very good friend of mine, one of the geniuses in artificial intelligence, Jura Leskovits, we created so-called American Slovenian Education Foundation. And now with this foundation, we are able to place students in the best universities of the United States, such as Harvard and uh, Princeton and Stanford and Berkeley and Georgetown and uh, others, uh, as well as in other countries such as uh, England and Australia and Zealand, New Zealand. And uh, it's just growing. Um, and mm-hmm. So I was asked here in Brussels to start with a project of political formation of the youth because it is the heart of uh, the EU. And also uh, the Jesuits thought that we have uh, quite something to offer. So about a year and a half ago, we started the European Leadership Program. We are now to select the fourth cohort already. It's a five month or a semester long program. It's a wonderful thing. It's all about formation. Uh, while they work in the institutions or companies that lobby for the institutions at the European or European Union level, uh, they get spiritual coaching. Um, they also um, receive at their home wonderful guests, high-level officials, professors, and others. They do volunteering work. They serve the poor. And they live in the community. And interestingly, the community part is something that turns out almost at, at the level of every single individual in this program as the most important component of the project so it's something beautiful in a sense to become a leader uh, community is essential while we also need to work on our talents and i was grateful to and i am still to many friends that have helped me to discover this talent of uh, activation which then if combined with strategy and i think strong faith can move mountains i've really seen it because there is so much good energy there is so much Of uh, potential in people that if we bring it together it can work I will just give you one example when I came to Brussels to take over this job um, it was not an easy transition and then uh, we um, reformed the team in a sense with a young generation most of them interns that worked uh, at the Jesk at the Jesuit European Social Center with which we then started this I think now top program of formation in Brussels So i think we really can count on young people and it's actually our vocation especially now as we talk about universal apostolic preferences on the level of uh, the global society of jesus one of these is to journey with youth while also providing elements of spiritual exercises and discernments or showing the way to god and at the same time uh, working with those that are excluded walking with them and uh, caring or collaborating in the care of our common home And I think those now come together wonderfully. And I enjoy this job, I really do. And I think we have a wonderful team. And I think this is the most important part of of success, is teamwork. The the stronger the team, the better. Individuals can be stars, but it's not enough. We have seen, and we talked about Slovenians in sport, we have seen that uh, just a star is not enough. You need a team. You need a group of people that are focused, that are disciplined, and have talent. So you have young college-age folks coming. How many and were they coming like coming from all over Europe to the program? Yeah, all over Europe this time. Uh, so in October, we'll have for the first time somebody from the United States. Mind you, it's very good, so it's growing. I think we'll, we'll have them uh, from all over the world uh, in um, in the future. We started small because we want this to be a top program, prestigious, so we can focus five people started, that was the first generation. And then now it's growing uh, little by little. This time we'll have about 14. It also depends on our housing capacity. So each semester we find a house somewhere uh, by the help of the Jesuits or other uh, uh, partners. And I think eventually, this is a little bit my hope, I think I can disclose disclose this. I think this would become a college but not just a college of uh, you know, education, it's more about formation. And these are uh, the young people that are highly talented, have finished a master's or two, they're interested in the work for Europe, they come here for training, and then some of them would stay, they get employed by the uh, European Commission, or European Parliament, or other institutions here in Brussels, or they go back home um, maybe for further studies like PhD, or they work for the church institutions back home, uh, sometimes connected with the Jesuits, And i think it's wonderful and this this is only there is only way up for this one of course it has to uh, to grow um uh in humility i think that's one of the most important virtues but also a a project as such and that helps us not to not to be too fast uh in growth otherwise we'll be like uh, you know the economy of today and we just see the the growth as the main paradigm which uh which doesn't work if it's not coupled with the personal growth and that we can do. And I think Jesuits, we are called to do that, Jesuits and, and partners. So you're in Brussels, you know, the capital really of
0: Europe where the political kind of power of the continent comes together and talking about faith. So these are topics that are really not supposed to bring up at parties, right? Religion and politics. Uh, and you're kind of sitting at the intersection of those. And I, I, there's a lot of talk about that here in North America, in the U S especially as we approach our presidential election, the role of faith in politics should, what role does faith have? Should we have those things together? Uh, where do, where do you see, like, why do you think the Jesuits should be at that intersection? Like what, why involved in politics? Isn't, isn't politics best left for others? Why should we be there?
1: Well, it's hard for me to say what Jesuits should be doing or not. Uh, because, uh, um, yeah, who, who am I to say? Uh, but I think there are a lot of possibilities for this kind of uh, engagement. Uh, first, of course, we have to be prudent. Prudence is one of the most important virtues, uh, a cardinal one. And uh, the way we talk about God needs to be adjusted to the audience. And I think this was the approach of Saint Ignatius, very clear. For example, when he would be at lunch or at dinner, he would not talk much. Actually, very little we hear from his uh, autobiography. He would then address them towards the end of the meal or after the meal and people loved him for that so they want him to stay furthermore what happened he listened to them and uh, as we listen to people we discover their needs and i think that's step number one once we are sure about the needs of others then we can serve otherwise we will just impose our own vision of what we think is best for them in terms of faith or politics or, or other things and i think that's a that's a humble faith and that's a beautiful faith in a sense it's it's like saint paul describing christ as uh emptying himself as as kenosis and that's that's one uh we we much talk about the word um, that became incarnate and it became a little boy a child you know baby this is about listening this is about growing up and uh, when we talk about politics i think it's very important for the church right now in the united states or elsewhere to listen i find sometimes damaging what certain uh, christians Or Catholics or even priests say on behalf of politics I think it's early so often we act out of our either um, somewhat limited understanding of the doctrine or sometimes emotions and then we link it to certain party affiliation and that's too far it's not it's not smart Uh, however we can talk about faith of course just take a look at the European Union it would not exist without Catholic social teaching without Christian background it's based on those principles after the war when millions of people died, it was about uh, those young people that believed and were formed in Christianity, let's say even more, I think they were formed in the church, they were formed in communities that came together and said, let us rebuild Europe on principles that would last. Not all of them were religious, not all of them were Christian, but there was a place for everybody based on these principles. And I think that's such a clear case. Uh, sh- did they talk explicitly about faith? Perhaps sometimes. But that needed to be shown in their actions. And political decision-making is in a sense an action that if not based on faith or at least some deep conviction that is pure, right? So there is no interest behind, there is gratuité, then it works. Otherwise it, it can't work, then it's about my interest. And is that really then uh, spreading the gospel? Not not that sure. So. All the activists on one side or the other, in current uh, United States electoral campaign or elsewhere, I think it's really, I think it's missing the point and it can be hurtful. Now, we can have strong opinion on issues and we have to, and I think we have to be uh, sometimes prophetic, but that's not the same as party alignment and saying things such as this party or that party is bad. No, I think that's not for the judges or actually... um, yeah many many of us now can a christian serve on those parties of course uh, saint augustine asked this question to himself because he was approached that no a christian should be outside as you know shouldn't care about politics as long as there is peace or at least their rituals are allowed uh, like liturgical life and other things and then he would say no it's important for christians also to be judges and to be so on and um, I think it, it's similar today. So of course, Christians, I think it's, it's it's important that they belong to certain civil society organizations, they belong to political parties, they belong to businesses and so on, and that's, that, that's important. For a Jesuit though, I think we are called to something, <laughs> let me put it this way, more universal. I cannot say greater, but more universal. And that's also where Ignatius found more fruit, need to be more universal that's why he talked about the greater glory of God and once we speak about something more universal meaning that we want to bring together more people or at least if nothing in them together trying to be relevant to as many as possible we have to be universal so uh, I was quite impressed to learn that the first Jesuits were very keen on reconciliation they would help many groups political groups to come together and reconcile So here is a question uh, uh, to my fellow Jesuits or to any Christian, how good are we in bringing different parties together, in bringing parties in conflict together, right? Not that good, maybe our score is is not that high. Um, So that would be uh, one of the the challenges. The second one is, uh, I think we can offer a lot of support that do express um, uh, Catholic convictions on different levels. Uh, in terms of uh, teaching or action, while being in, in, on different sides of uh, different institutions, uh, saying here that um, what we are currently doing right now in Brussels um, is that um, we would like to bring together Jesuit alumni, so people that worked in uh, that were educated by the Jesuits around the world and somehow happened to be working in Brussels so that uh, we grow together as a community and that we have the younger generation coming coming here to maintain the basic principles, which we see Christian principles in keeping up building Europe. And I think that is a wonderful job that we can do as uh, Jesuits, then offering uh, spiritual exercises, sometimes even be prophetic, for example, um, fight for one, uh, let's say justice issue or the other, let's say ecological, Uh, question, Uh, there are things about collaboration with um, other continents such as uh, Africa and beyond. So I would see our role there quite present. The third point and perhaps the most important one is where I see the Jesuit contribution to the question of faith and politics and the involvement is formation. Formation is something that the Jesuits developed very early on, I think to their own surprise seeing that how much can be done through colleges. Uh, The first Jesuits had a number of activities um, on different levels, and when they established a college, they realized that they could bring together not only students, but their parents, culture, the city, uh, politicians, and uh, more. And I think something similar can happen if we uh, keep on investing in young people. It was the strength of the Jesuits of the first 100 years and more to transform the educational platform of the globe. And I think this could be something if we continue with that same determination and passion, that same intentionality, uh, even today. For example, this would not necessarily mean an educational institution, which we have quite a few, and some of them are simply excellent, but it's more about forming the person. That's why I think we need to think about the community approach. We need to think about how bringing different young people together and uh, train them. And I think currently the age group uh, between, let's say, 23 and 30 is the crucial one. Of course, the ones before uh, are also important uh, because they train um, a young person. But then when it comes to real involvement in politics uh, for, let's say, the next 10 or 20 or 30 years, that would be the age group. So what
0: are some of the the big issues that uh, you're working on right now at JESC? What are some of the the things you want to make sure folks in in Brussels are paying attention to? Uh, What are you lifting up?
1: Currently, we work uh, very well together on ecological issues. We have uh, come together as a group of different networks, uh, two different networks of uh, bishops' conferences, uh, development agencies in an umbrella called SIDSE justice and peace offices, our Jesuit social centers around Europe, uh, Caritas, Europa, um, SIDZ, I'm sorry, the GCCM, the Global Catholic Climate Movement. And uh, we work now in unison in order to advocate at the European level, European Union level, on questions of ecology that come uh, inspired by the Laudato Si' encyclical. So we named ourselves as the european laudato sea alliance and i think this is wonderful work and we do this together as a church Uh, and it also goes back to the uh, grassroots level Uh, hopefully we will be um, conducting a survey next year around europe to see what the church uh, is doing in this area and I think that the even politicians, but uh, more broadly speaking, the institutions and Europe needs help uh, on this and the church could provide it because it's a good example. So the ecological transition, especially the just ecological transition, is uh, one of our areas of focus. And it's also quite a, a simple one in a sense. It's not too complicated. It opens many doors to us. For example, I was invited to uh, the cabinet of former president of the commission to speak about actually faith and the church and what uh, we could do uh, in terms of synergies. So that is one very important issue that, of course, as such is still uh, general. There are many uh, questions that um, um, need to be answered within uh, this uh, broader area of ecology. Another one is, um, is help to those that need international protection as refugees. Uh, So we are dealing with the huge uh, question of uh, migrants, but especially those who need uh, protection, who can no longer stay at home because of war or violence or uh, other reasons. And there is an important work that uh, we do here on the level of Brussels uh, through our organization called the Jesuit Refugee Service. There are other justice issue issues that uh, we want to address. For example, not far ago, we offered a conference to people working both in the European Parliament and the European Commission on tax justice. Uh, we have done research in Africa and in Europe, brought uh, data together, and then brought people together that then could legislate better ideas about how to tax, how to better tax, and then uh, how to use this so that the poor people uh, in Africa are not abused by big uh, corporations, uh, but in fact could benefit from them. Because if that money is then lost to Africa, it is at the same time also lost for Europe, because these corporations, for example, would buy very expensive apartments in Germany, and then the price of an average apartment in Germany goes up because of uh, these corporations. So this is this is uh, an important justice issue. And uh, there are others. Uh, part of our work here is to help are so-called delegates for social apostolate uh, to uh, work well and um, across Europe uh, we do wonderful things from uh, young Jesuits in Poland very dedicated in different areas of work such as uh, helping the elderly uh, to uh, refugees to questions of uh, missionary work. Uh, They help young people to, to travel abroad and provide some help or even raise funds to very let's say, uh, established institutions in Spain uh, helping families in distress, uh, local communities, uh, migrants, uh, people that uh, uh, otherwise wouldn't uh, receive this help that are radio programs and so on and so forth. And there's also quite some research being done. Our social centers would do research and publish a number of uh, well-known uh, magazines or journal journals and I think that's great work. So that there is some intellectual component to our, um, let's say, uh, justice ministry and uh, social issues. And this connected to also academic life. We have started a project called Higher Education for Social Transformation. So working with our universities, we think and rethink the questions of of uh, ecology, of the common good, of Ignatian spirituality, uh, and so on. So I think these would be. Our main areas of work trying also to learn from one another I think that is very important some Jesuits work better in one area and some better in the other and as we learn from one another I think um, is great for example currently what the Jesuits in France and French speaking Belgium are doing in terms of coming together through zoom conferences and so in order to share best practices and then uh, uh, have very concrete steps in terms of how to reduce uh, single-use plastics or uh, other issues that are hurting the planet. I think that's 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 great, and it also also is a sign for uh, others. Now, of course, the 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 one area that we were asked to do a few years ago is the area of leadership, and perhaps we can say a few words about that.
0: Yeah, well, maybe that's a good segue into. I'm thinking about like how the pandemic has affected uh, your work, both the issues you're working on, the running of the programs, but also your vision about kind of what's important. In your ministry i know it's kind of been a chance for a lot of us to kind of evaluate what's really important in our lives um what are we being called to do how do we navigate life so if yeah if you want to share any about how the pandemic has affected uh, your work your vision uh i think that'd be interesting
1: i think we really focused uh, a lot on the team and on being very humane or have a human approach uh at the time when the crisis hit and that helped us a lot. I think we, since we have, we happen to have a great team here at JESC, um, it didn't hurt us so much. So when we uh, went all into confinement, we were able to support one another. Some people needed more support than the others. Some wanted to come back to the office sooner than the uh, others. So, in a sense, uh, uh, there was this important component of just uh, basic and beautiful and kind human relations, understanding the issues. I, at the same time, wanted to, uh, wanted the team to stay as close together as possible. And as soon as we were able to come back to the office, uh, we did, because physical presence and proximity is also important. And that's a huge challenge and sometimes a trade-off uh, these days. So we have to be prudent, while at the same time, uh, take care of this uh, team perspective. Another thing that uh, then happened to us is that um, we engaged uh, different, uh, actually all the provincials of uh, Europe and the Near East to rethink this question of the pandemic together and address the European institutions. And I think the provincials were successful. Uh, the statement that was um, sent to uh, main institutions here in Brussels, as well as to different countries was well received, uh, reprinted in the media and so. And I think the Jesuit voice here, representing also the Catholic voice, was uh, an important uh, one. Um, There is a bit of a difference between uh, what we, I think, what uh, Europe has in terms of the first wave of the pandemic and the second one. I think now the second one most likely will be uh, even stronger. And uh, for some reason, we are keeping activities almost as if Uh, life is normal and we know it isn't Um, however I think we are learning about how to cope with this it's a risky endeavor Uh, I'm not sure what the best solution is Uh, so in a sense I think it was it was actually easy to be confined uh, because once you're not confined and deal with the same issue (laughs) It's much more difficult because then you have to think about, for example, teenagers. They have to come together. They have to. It's in their nature. And they will not wear a mask and they will go out for dancing and then they get infected. And then other people are affected. So it's a big issue. But if you're all confined, and we have seen this with children, very hard for children, especially hard for teenagers, very hard for parents. Parents do work from home. At the same time, they homeschool their children so they are burning out we had issues uh, with with our colleagues and uh, trying to see how we can best manage this so that human approach just being with one another sometimes was very important otherwise we would not have survived i think that was for, for some some let's say our social centers or our works that was that was crucial then in fact what we learned in many instances was the importance of the team so mutual support Another one was a little bit to learn with, uh, how to live and work with uncertainty, since it's very hard to plan events, it's hard to plan conferences, uh, it's hard to plan our physical proximity with people, especially those uh, uh, who need uh, most protection or support that are poor. Um, that's, that's difficult. And I think that's something uh, we are uh, also learning. So you talked about leadership and how you're trying to form
0: leaders through through your work there. And I'm thinking again now in this this time is a time we need good leadership more than ever, maybe uh, both at like national levels and political places also at Institutions religious institutions or educational ones in families like we we have people who are making a lot of decisions all the time uh, For that affect a lot of other people So what are some of the kind of Ignatian leadership principles that you uh, try to form your folks in that you think might be valuable to all of us? As we try to to navigate this time
1: The first approach is the Ignatian approach of any good leader of any good uh, superior is is love Is love towards god and one another so uh, we take the presuppositions of others as good we try to see good in them the holiness in them and uh, this presupposes a quality of uh, listening in order to uh, make informed decisions we need to listen and i think it can help any community to be really attentive to what people are saying of course people say things that uh, range from uh, one extreme to the other and the politician has to have the capacity than to discern in order to make the decision that could could be owned by everybody even if people disagree. So what I'm talking about here is the capacity to listen in a process. Uh, another element I think that is very important in these times is kindness, is the virtue of kindness, and the more leaders acquire it, uh, I think the more they will be able uh, to help the communities they serve as leaders, to overcome the pandemic uh, in a sense that uh, we respect what saint paul says that uh, love is not rude it's uh, trendy for leaders these days to be rude on any side and it's something that uh, i think we cannot afford of course we need determination that ex- it is extremely important with determination comes consistency, so that the decisions are made are well thought through because they were discerned because uh, There was love involved and and a lot of listening. And determination in order to produce results, uh, not just to be effective, needs kindness, needs that human approach that uh, considers uh, each as equals. Uh, I think these would be some of the uh, Ignatian approaches. And then, uh, very importantly, is to form one another. Because leaders in their positions still can grow as leaders, and they can ask for, uh, let's say, spiritual exercises, so that they discover themselves what are the things that are they are attached to. Because those attachments, disorderly uh, attachments, may lead them to, to decisions that are poorly informed or uh, are just not uh, healthy. Or uh, while they may be healthy for others, they're not healthy for, uh, let's say, the leaders themselves. So I think. In this time of crisis what is necessary is to take uh, time and give space to these kind of questions and not to ignore them but to in a sense integrate them and uh, so show leadership I will give you one example in the European leadership program when our fellows came together just before the pandemic they did not know each other all that well so when the pandemic hit they found each other in the same house Living together, which is wonderful, working together, which is wonderful, but then things come up. You know, There's emotions, there is conflict, and conflict is a part of our life. It's just uh, you cannot avoid it. Actually, if we do, uh, we will not gain clarity out of it because conflict is, when we talk about, let's say, conflict of resources, conflict of who is going to cook this evening, and so on and so forth. Uh, if it's dealt with and we have sufficient trust so that we can deal with the conflict, then we will emerge out stronger. And I remember one night when things got uh, quite difficult for a number of uh, fellows, we had an evening of uh, mediation and reconciliation. And it took a whole lot of listening on each, on everybody's side. It took us um, freedom, so that we could commit to something even though we couldn't imagine at the very beginning. And then it took us a process of discernment just to see what the next steps would be so that we get out of this crisis. And we actually got out of the crisis stronger. And I think that's a good sign for Europe or for the globe because if we are able to get out of crisis on on this scale, these then future leaders will be able to get out of crisis also because they have sufficient trust, they know each other, so they could deal with the conflict. Once you deal with conflict, What you get out is clarity and then commitment, because we have come to something together. And based on that, I think results will follow. It cannot be otherwise. So uh, for politicians today, I think the more we build on trust, the better. That comes with love. It's necessary. The more we deal with conflict, uh, the better the results that will come out of uh, a clarity that uh, is, uh, I think, a result of dealing well with the conflict, the better for us. So I think those are some very simple, um, not necessarily just Ignatian elements, but they could uh, greatly help because they presuppose that we as people are good and then we can build on one another and that's spiritual exercises one-on-one. That's right. Well, I love the way
0: you put that and, and drew from the, the tradition both Ignatian and more broadly, to think about you know those values we can bring uh, to these big questions today. And I just really want to thank you for taking the time, Father Peter. I'm just so impressed by your, your vision and your commitment to innovation and faith and formation. I just think it's a great model. And I hope uh, the European Leadership Project program in particular is something that can grow all around. I think it's a really cool model uh, and something that could really breathe life into the church. So Thank you for all that and for all you're doing.
1: Come and visit and uh, also bring your friends, should you know students or people that have have just finished their formation recently in schools. Uh, We would be very happy to host them. And of course, uh, it'll be also quite easier after the pandemic because we know that this crisis will end and that we have sufficient resources to fight it and we will overcome. Until then, I think we need to believe one another and support one another. And I thank you, Mike, for the support and for the opportunity to be on this channel.
0: Alrighty, take care, Father Peter.
1: Yeah, likewise. God bless.
0: AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at WeAreTheJesuits, and Facebook.com Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.